The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Fully to hear today's gospel story means needing to hear that in Matthew's gospel's setting, this story, actually, this may seem strange, but it actually takes place the day after Palm Sunday when Jesus had triumphantly entered the city as crowds hailed him king and son of David and answer to their prayers. At which point, and when we worship on Palm Sunday itself, we never actually get around to reading this part of the story. The first thing Jesus then, when he got to Jerusalem, did was to go to the temple where he overturned tables to send coins flying and he uncaged animals which had been there for sale for temple sacrifices to send them bleeding and braying and scattering and he drove out vendors with a whip according to John to send them running for cover all the while shouting the words of the prophet my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves the powerful den leaders, of course, the elders and the chief priests, maintained their power and in many cases amassed their fortunes administering the thievery of the system. And the poor got poorer, and the powerful ignored them except to exploit them. Jesus, who came expressly, he said, for the poor and for the humble, the poor in spirit, came to town on Palm Sunday speaking the truth to power on behalf of the poor, and power, Matthew says, got very angry. On the way back out of town that evening, Jesus cursed a fig tree beside the road for bearing no fruit, and the tree immediately withered and died. 
And it doesn't take a degree in theological rocket science to understand. Jesus was angry. And what he was angry at was bad religion. And what bad religion was was fruitless religion, which he deemed to be as useless and as dead as a fig tree with no figs. To be clear, in cursing the tree, Jesus curses religion and the powers that be which maintain their power through religion, which is all about being religious-looking in the eyes of others when they see you, rather than being God's love and God's mercy and God's care for others through you. The next day, Matthew says, this would be now Monday of Holy Week, if Matthew is keeping literal time, Jesus was back on the temple grounds, probably, I think, not in the temple itself, but rather in an outdoor kind of courtyard, a place where men and women and Jews and Gentiles and sinners would have been allowed to gather with him, which they did, and which they were delighting in, until they all looked up to see a procession of power coming toward them, looking for him. And finding him, power, power said to him, by what authority do you do these things you're doing? And who gave you this authority? It was not, of course, a sincere question. And Jesus, of course, knew this. And so he answered their question with a question which in short order exposed their duplicity. That question being where they thought John the Baptist had gotten his authority. And they then huddled their, their pointy religious heads and they said to each other, if we say it came from God, then he'll say, well, why didn't you listen to John then and repent the way he told you to? But if we say John didn't come from God, things could get ugly quick because all these people around here love John. So they, what they said to Jesus in front of all the people was, don't know. Note. As the powerful considered their response, there is no consideration of saying what they actually thought was true. For they weren't interested in truth. They were interested in defending their power by making Jesus, this threat to their power, look bad and not looking bad themselves in the process. And so when he answered their question with a question, they answered his question with a lie. Note 2, power that is of God speaks the truth and in doing so exposes power that is not of God. That exposure again and again taking place when power not of God inevitably reveals its utter lack of interest in truth for its only interest is its power. And so it crafts whatever narrative it can, true or not, if the narratives can help them maintain or consolidate their power. And in that moment, choosing power over truth, they reveal that it is power that is in fact their God, as opposed to the true God, who cannot but be truth. Which Jesus in our text for today then responds to with a parable. Kind of an odd one, really. What do you think? He said, a man had two sons. He went to the first and said, go and work in the vineyard today. And that first son said, nope, not interested, ain't going to happen. Okay, boomer. Later, that son changed his mind and went out and worked in the vineyard like his father wanted. 
The father said the very same thing to his other son, go and work in the vineyard today. And this son, and we're going to call him, we're going to call him Eddie, um, as in Eddie, Eddie Haskell. This son said, absolutely, father, what a great idea. And how about if I stop on the way and ask Mrs. Cleaver if Wallace and Theodore can help? But when dad left, his son Eddie said, oh man, he is so lame. I do not do vineyards. And so he didn't. Instead, he grabbed the remote, found his latest favorite Netflix series, ordered a pizza on his Chomp app, and settled into the recliner. By the way, at this point, I'm thinking, um, if we're looking for life lessons anyway, that, that this man in this parable actually needs another son, doesn't he? Uh, a third son who, number one, would first of all respectfully say, yes, Father, I'll do that. And then two, would follow that up by going out and actually doing what he'd said he'd do. But Jesus, for his own reasons, didn't work a respectful and obedient son into his parable, but rather points to a man who only has the sons he has, both of whom are nobody's hero and far from perfect. I wonder if it's a reminder to us that God only has the us that God has. And none of us are perfect, and our faith and faithfulness are far from heroic. Jesus' point in this parable, however, wasn't and still isn't about perfection. It's about obedience, about, about up and doing what your dad told you to do. And so turning now after the parable to the chief priests and the elders, he does not say which of these two sons was perfectly and respectfully obedient. Rather, what he says to them is, tell me which of these two sons, in the end, <laughs> obediently did the will of his father. Well, weird parable, surely, but easy question and easy answer. The first son was surely absolutely nobody's hero. I mean, his initial treatment of his father was shamefully disrespectful. But that said, if the question is, who's the one who actually, in the end, actually did what dad actually asked him, it was him. And so they said so. And Jesus then turned from the powerful who had come questioning his power to turn toward the crowds who had gathered around him and who heard in him power for his words. Unlike any of these other teachers, his words touched their hearts powerfully. They were not by and large an impressive group. Indeed, there were even tax collectors and prostitutes, traitors and whores among them. What were people like that even doing on the Temple Mount? Truth be told, I imagine some of them were actually wondering the same thing. For the temple wasn't a place they'd been anywhere near for a whole long time, for it was a place they knew the powerful judged them powerfully. They were here now, nevertheless, for only one reason. They were here because this is where Jesus was. And they had actually begun to believe in the possibility that in spite of what they'd done, Jesus, God maybe even, loved them powerfully. At which point, which point Jesus then turned his gaze back to the power, powerful to speak this truth to power. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
And while Power's jaws then dropped in shock and Power's faces then reddened in indignation, Jesus then doubled back to the earlier reference he'd made to John the Baptist, and he now answered for them the question earlier which they had earlier refused to answer, that answer being that they didn't believe that John came from God, which is why they hadn't listened to him by doing what John told every single person who ever got within earshot of him to do, that is to repent. That is to turn from the wickedness of your ways to then turn toward the righteousness of God's ways, which you, Jesus said to the self-righteous and entitled smugness of them, haven't done. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, he said, have. Which means that while you are self-righteously, smugly, looking down your pointy, judgmental noses at them for what they've done, in the eyes of God, they're, the, they're at the head of the line. They are way, way, way ahead of you. For you've sinned, they've sinned and acknowledged their sin and want to change their ways, but you've acknowledged nothing, for your only concern is maintaining your ways. They, you see, Jesus is clearly saying, they are that son who says all the right and proper things, those things being, in their case, the very right and proper religious things they said all the time as they gathered in worship, processing in their processions, making their impressions, reciting their litanies and their lines, and religiously speaking, looking oh so obedient, but none of it ever left worship with them, Jesus said to become obedience in the vineyards of their daily lives. Worshiping God without at least seeking to live in obedience to God is not worship. It is at best empty ritual which so easily devolves into the hypocrisy of a performance I'm performing in order to be applauded as great and godly rather than humbling myself repentantly before the great godness of God. As to likewise faith without striving for obedience is not faith. It is at best dry dogma, but more accurately what it is is as useless and dead as a fig tree that produces no figs. For faith and worship are not faith and worship at all if they do not include true and humble repentance before God then obediently to strive after, humbly, not for reward or recognition, but humbly to strive after the will of God. Which, of course, as it turns out, truth be told, leaves all of us, all of us being as much sinner as we are saint, between a rock and a hard place as we listen to this parable, for it exposes our sin. Unless... Unless the owner of the vineyard does, in fact, have another son. Not another son in the parable, but the son, the son, the son of God, the son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna, who is telling the parable, telling it to nothing but sinners on his way to a cross where obedient to the Father and loving all whom the Father loves, he will make saints out of sinners. 
and he'll do it by the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness which gathers sinners, forgiveness which welcomes sinners, forgiveness which saves sinners, forgiveness which calls sinners to turn from sin by turning to the fruitfulness of obedience. Not perfection, of course. Remember, the father in the parable only has the two sons he has, and neither of them are perfect. They're both pieces of work in their own way, and so too God the Father only has the us that God has, and none of us are perfect. We are all, I imagine, pieces of work in our own ways. But God does have that other son, the one telling the parable, who for us and for our salvation will speak truth to the power all the way to a cross, where the power he will speak truth to is the power of sin itself, and then all the way to a grave, where a power he will speak truth to is the power of the devil himself. And then all the way to that emptied tomb, where the power he will speak true, truth to is the power of death itself. And the truth he will speak to all of them, sin, Satan, and death, is this truth. You lose. Love wins. Drop mic. And why did love even enter the fray in the first place to win the fight? It would win and will win because truth. God just can't get over God's love for God's world and God's love for God's you. So you so believe, and believing repent, and repenting worship, and worshiping obey. And what does obedience look like? Well, in Paul's words, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, power, as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does obedience look like? Well, Paul says what it looks like is Jesus, the other son who in humbling himself for us moves us and, Paul says, will finally move all 
to our knees before him, there to discover, not with pride, but with joy that humbled to my knees, I am not only now in prime position to worship my Lord, I am also now in prime position at last to love my neighbor. And so in Paul's closing, and admittedly oft misunderstood words, we all of us now are to work out our own salvation, which of course does not mean working to earn our salvation. For goodness sakes, people, this is Paul writing. Paul, who means that we are to be at work, obediently to take the love that saved us into the daily lives we live. And to do so, Paul says, again, misunderstood words, to do so with fear and trembling, not, 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 in the sense that we are afraid, but rather that we are a tremble in awe of the fact that the one who saved the likes of us actually desires to be and in fact is at work for good and for love in the world in and through the likes of us. Amen.